0: From day one to day 365, God has been with you. From day one to day 365 in the new year, let's devote ourselves to being with God again and again. Enjoy the message. But uh, many of us, this time of year starts off where we, we, we set goals for ourselves, right? Have you ever have, Did you start off last year with a New Year's resolution of, of any sort, anything that you wanted to change? you said, hey, you know what, I'm going to start 2023 off uh, with, with this goal in mind. Or if you're, uh, Lucy who is from our city group, she said, it's not a New Year's resolution, it's a New Year's determination. So I just want to see a quick show of hands if you had a resolution or are planning on doing one for this year. I'm not going to guilt or shame you. I just kind of want to survey. This might not be as common of a practice as the uh, internet leads us to believe. Okay, okay. <clears throat> What I want to mention this morning is if you're if you're anything like me, you notice that your life isn't quite where you want it to be and you decide sometime around this this time of year that I want to make a change. I want to I want to do I see this thing in my life where I want to grow and 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 I start off with the best intentions possible. But what happens? The hurry, the worry and the busy of life comes has its own vote. And, and inevitably we reach the end 365 year, days later and we're not quite where we, we thought we would be at the beginning of last year. And I kind of look at this as every year, you know, we have our, our annual physicals. We t- Any physical take- takers in here? We go to our doctor and we sit down and they're like, all right, you know, let's get you in and out in five minutes. How are you doing? You're doing good. Uh, any problems or complications? No. Anything you want to talk about? No, I just want to get in and get out and do my thing, right? Um, well, what I thought would be interesting is what if, what if we treated this message today as a spiritual physical, right? As a spiritual time where, you know, I go to my doctor, I'm sitting down with my medical professional, and he's telling me every single year, and, and shame on me, he says, you know, you really need to lift weights. And I'm looking eye to eye with the medical professional saying, I'm a runner. I have absolutely no desire. To, to pump iron all day, I hate it, it's not my thing, I'm not going to do it, but I, but I don't say that. I sit there and I go, yeah, okay, yep, yep, I'm going to do it, yep, all right, fine, and knowing full well in the back of my mind that there's nothing that he's going to say, nothing that he's going to do that's going to change my determination to avoid the gym at all possible. So, <clears throat> this morning, truth be told, you could be hearing this sermon and you could be thinking, okay, well... He's going to treat it like a, a spiritual physical. His pastor is going to get up here and he's going to tell me all these spiritual things that I should be doing, that I know I should be doing, that I'm feeling guilty for not doing. So we could just end the sermon right now. We could go home. I could just say, pray, pray read your Bible and pray, and let's get the worship band up here and, and call it close. But the thing is, if we sat down and we were having coffee and I asked you, how are you doing? You'd say, good, I'm doing okay. You know, life, is, life could be better, Right? Do you have any problems or complications? Uh, Nothing that I really want to talk about. It's not that big of a deal. And then I get to, you know, the the old spiritual, physical question. Are you reading your Bible and praying? You're like, "Eh, could be a little better, could be a little better. And you realize that you have things that you want to change. But oftentimes we feel stagnant in our faith because we we, we would leave this place where we come to worship and we surround ourselves with other people who believe in God and, and we're like, yeah, I know I should be doing this. But I just can't bring myself around to do it. And so, if you're checking out church for the first time today, I want, I want to let you know something. This message this morning, I've written this message for somebody specific in mind, okay? And if you're checking out church for the first time, I want you to understand this, that this message that you're going to hear, it, it, it's, it's not so much written for, for a, someone who doesn't know Jesus, Okay? Um, I, want you to, I want you to seriously think about what we're talking about this morning and ask yourself, is the God of the Bible someone that I want to follow? That's the question that I would love for you to, to wrestle through this morning. If you're here this morning and reading your Bible is effortless, times of prayer just, just come naturally, like you're, you're looking, you hear the worship night on the 11th and you're like, I can't wait to be there, then this, this message for you is going to be more of a heart check to say, Guard yourself against what we're talking about. But the point that I want to drive forward today is for anybody who's here who feels stagnant in their faith, who is here on day one of 2023 and is here on day 365 of 2023 and you feel like you're kind of in the same spot. You know, you, you know you should read the Bible, but, but there's so many other things in life that get our attention. You know you should be praying to God and, and, and quite honestly, maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you pray to God when you put your kids to bed. Maybe some of you pray when you're eating dinner. But, but personal prayer time, yeah, it doesn't really take high priority, right? You might listen to Christian music when you're at work, when you're you know, multitasking. You know, you've got your, your favorite band on and your headphones. But when it comes to a worship night, eh, it's not really all that important. It's not something, I'm, my life's pretty good. I, 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 can, I can get by without it. But it's my prayer that this morning that if you're in that spot, if you find yourself kind of spiritually stagnant, and you find yourself not able to do the things that you really know you should be doing, my prayer is that you would leave this place today knowing that the main point is this, is that you want to learn to love God for God. Okay, I know it's, it's profound, right? Loving God for who he actually is. And you might say to yourself, well, I've tried. I've done all of these things before, I've I've, I've tried, I've tried reading my Bible, I had a Bible reading streak, you should have seen this thing. The streak was like 500 days long in my Bible app, but I broke my streak and I never could quite get back to the spot where I was at before. Or I've tried a Bible reading plan and I made it, you know, I started at Genesis and I made made it day one, I made it day two, but then I got to this list of of rules and regulations in, in the book of Genesis and I was bored out of my mind. I put the Bible down, and I never really picked it back up. So before we talk about all of the things that we know that we should be doing, I do, it's not my goal to heap on guilt and shame on you this morning. It's my goal to identify what the problem actually is. What is the thing that keeps us from actually pursuing God? And the problem is is... Actually, it, it's, it's, it's something that you're probably all familiar with. It's a really short word. It's a really simple problem with a really profound impact on our life. It's one three-letter word, and it's called sin. Does everyone know what sin is? Do I need to unpack the word, uh, the epitomology of, of what the word is? Well, uh, when, it, when you go to the theological you know, textbooks and you, and you look at what Wayne Grudem says, okay, Wayne Grudem defines it this way. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Actions, attitudes, and nature. And this is a really all-encompassing, you know, understanding of the word. And, w- and when I come to dictionary definitions, it's really easy for me to look at it and say, yeah, you know what, I understand how that, you know, cognitively affects my life. I understand that I have actions that I shouldn't do. I understand that I have attitudes that I shouldn't have. And I understand that my human nature comes out and brings out the worst in me, right? And it's really easy to approach a dictionary definition and the truth of God in the scripture with with, with just kind of this, I generally understand the concepts that you're saying, right? But it's completely different when you approach scripture, when you approach a definition, when you approach anything from an an understanding that you want to apply it to your life. And so this morning, I'm going to take Wayne Grudem's definition. I'm not going to dismiss it, but I want to take John Piper's definition of sin which is really going to help us to internalize it. It's really going to help us to apply it directly to our life. And this is the way that Piper defines it. He says, What is sin? The truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. And when you look at it that way, you can see how on one hand the dictionary definition covers all of that. But on the other hand, when you take the truth of Scripture and you actually apply it directly to your life and you ask yourself these questions, right? Do you seek truth from the Word of God? Oh man, maybe not every day. Okay, uh, do, do you see the wisdom from Scripture as, as, as foremost? Is it beneficial to your life? Or are the one-liners that you get on your social media feed, TikTok and YouTube, are those things more, you know, applicable to your life than the actual truth of Scripture? Maybe. Do you see God as beautiful? And for the guys in the room, that's kind of a weird uh, understanding of God, right? But if, if ESPN can call a perfect spiral a beautiful pass, I think we can understand That what we're going for here is is we're looking at, is God someone that we can sit in awe and wonder of? Is is he someone that's praiseworthy? Is he someone that's worthwhile of saying, look at this, this, God's amazing, right? Do you savor the goodness of God? Or are you living life so fast that the hurry, worry, and busy of life is drowning out your relationship with him? Is God's presence a, a value to you? You know, on Facebook, they have the relationship status, and it's one thing to click, you know, the status and to say, "Yeah, I've got the status on my social media page," but it's another thing when you're hanging around with your friends and your coworkers at a party, and they're and you're chatting it up, and you're like, "Hey, hey, yeah, is that your girl? Is, is that your girl or your boyfriend over there?" It's like, "Oh, yeah, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about something more interesting, right?" It's like, no. It, 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 It's one thing to say I'm a Christian and click the status button, but it's another thing to say God is of of first and foremost priority in my life. I love him more than anything else. So what thoughts or feelings well up inside of you when you think about who God is? So if you're not seeking truth, if you're not esteeming wisdom, if you're not treasuring, savoring, or loving God, then this morning, church, I love you. I, 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 I serve the families every single week. I'm uh, part of a city group that, that, that challenges me all the time. And on day 365, I'm here to tell you that if you're in the same place that you're in last year, if your faith feels stagnant, then it's likely due to sin's influence in your life. And it's our goal this morning, it's my goal, I'm pleading with you this morning, to learn to love God for God. So we're going to answer three questions about sin, okay? Three questions. What is sin? Why is it such a big deal, and how does it influence influence us, okay? So, first thing we're going to talk about is the self-centeredness of sin, okay? The self-centeredness of sin. Sin takes things and and points it right back at ourselves. So, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at how the Apostle Paul views his own sin, all right? So, turn with me, uh, Romans 3, 9. And we're going to see kind of the way that he wrestles with this. And I'm going to give you snapshots if you want to read. Um, it's kind of a big overview of, of chapters 1 to 3. But, but again, you'll, you'll understand where we're going when we read this. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And if you read these first three chapters, and as you study the passage, you're going to realize... Uh, the magnitude of the the statement that Paul is making. Because he's laid out this whole case in chapter 1 of Romans. He goes through all of these sins, all of the the immoral actions of the the Gentile world around him, right? But he's bringing us to to a head here at at verse 9 when he says that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. Because he's admitting that sin is a universal human problem. And what he's saying here is the same motivation that drives a murderous, greedy, jealous, you know, uh, uh, power-hungry criminal, is present in the heart of a person who appears to be good, moral, religious, and upright. And when you think about the statement that Paul is making, it's absolutely astounding, because Paul was a former Pharisee, okay? And as a former Pharisee, he would have thought that his moral upstanding, his 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 social credo, his, 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 you know, his reputation would have been built upon his good deeds and his ad- adherence to the Old Testament law. And by following all of these good deeds and doing all of these good things, he would have earned God's blessing and he would have won people's respect. And this is an absolutely massive statement for Paul to be making in this letter to Romans because the truth is he's the only one at this point in scripture who could be making this point. As a former Pharisee, he would have been an expert in the law. He would have known the Old Testament better than anybody he was writing this letter to, right? He would have have prided himself before knowing Jesus that he not only followed every letter of the law, but he was better at following the law than everybody else. And Paul's revealing something about the human heart that's absolutely stunning. Because upon first glance, he's showing us that while on the surface, good, moral, religious, upright people appear good, that they're still driven by the same motive and intention of sin as those bad, immoral, and and reckless people. The same motivation, the same driver, the same self-centeredness. He's admitting, the Apostle Paul is admitting, that every single person is motivated by it. You can't escape it. It permeates every action, and it permeates every intention of your life. And, And I'd go so far to say this. Even if you're here this morning and you're checking out Christianity, you're here for the first time, I just want to open your eyes to the fact that sin is probably distorting your view of who God is already. Because if you're anything like me, you were probably raised in a tradition or or, or you're raised with some sort of like view of what the church and Christianity is supposed to be. And you're probably walking into this room today and you're probably thinking, okay, Pastor's going to tell me um, all the things I need to do, so I need to figure out what are the good things that I need to do so that I can do those good things and receive God's blessing. But if, if that's your viewpoint this morning, if that's what you're coming to Christianity with, if that's your preconceived notion of what faith is supposed to look like, then you need to understand that whatever spreadsheet you've built up about how you're supposed to seek God, it's wrong. It's off base because your focus can't be on the good things that you're supposed to be doing. Your focus can't be on on your own good works. It has to be on the person and work of who God the Father actually is. It's not some religious, you know, quid pro quo approach Or if I do the right things, then God's going to bless me. You're focusing on the wrong thing. And I want to tell you that just like a number 16 team beating a number one team in the college whatever, you know, bracket, Christianity is a bracket buster. Christianity is a complete, completely separate religion from every other way, every other, every other means of, of, of people trying to attempt to find God. And so the first step for you, if you're here checking things out today, is you have to be, you have to be open and honest with yourself that you might have the wrong understanding of what Christianity is. Christianity is not spiritual behavior modification. Christianity is about finding who the real, true, and living God is and understanding that it's not you pursuing God to do the right things to find him, but it's that God is doing the things to seek and find you. The message made loud and clear in Romans chapter 3 comes from this idea, and it's an old doctrine. You can read about it in a theology book, but it's the doctrine of total depravity. That the human nature, the human condition is completely stained by sin. That, that every single person has been marked by this sin nature. And every single person, whether you're a so-called good person or you're a bad person, we're all affected by sin's influence. And, and if you've ever met somebody like Paul in your life, you know, if you've met somebody that, that parades around and pretends to be holier than thou, you understand how amazing this point is. I mean, think about it. The Pharisees would have repented. The Pharisees would have been very public about their repentance. They would have, they would have seen non-Jewish people in the day and, and thought of them as unclean, unfit to worship God. They would have been turning their noses down at all of the immorality that they see in the lives and, and saying, as, as Jesus said in one of the Gospels, thank God that I'm not like you know, th- this lowly person over here. I'm superior. I'm a Pharisee. I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the moral elites, right? Paul would have prided himself on his religious piety. So for him to go, once a Pharisee, now to devoting his entire life to writing a letter to the church in Rome to say, look, Jews and Greeks alike are affected by sin. How can we explain this? It's only because this doctrine of total depravity has completely redefined human nature in his eyesight, in his perspective He he would have looked looked his nose down at all the debauchery, but instead, he's saying, I'm no better. We're on on even ground. I've rehumanized all of these people that I once looked down on because I realize that my sin and your sin and their sin and all of our sins puts us on even ground before the Lord. It's absolutely amazing. There's no such thing as good people and bad people. We're all people affected by sin. I don't know a better way to explain Paul's change in perspective here. But that's why he would devote his life to seeking and finding lost people who he once cast aside. The very f- people that were formerly beneath him. He's rehumanized them because of his understanding that sin affects us all. And, it, and it's, it's evidence that the gospel of grace completely changed Paul's perspective. Something happened. From the day before he he met Jesus until after. Something completely reshaped the way that he saw the world. Good people don't receive blessings from God because of their good works. And bad people don't, you know, get shunned from God because of their bad works. It's a free gift of grace offered to everyone. And the only status on the Facebook page in Paul's mind is whether you've accepted grace or not. It's not on your works. His whole understanding has been reshaped. And that's how Paul gets to say in, cha- in, in chapter 3, verse 9, are we better off? And he says, by no means, for Jews and Greeks alike are under sin. So don't make the mistake this morning of, of having your spreadsheet, of saying, here's all the things that, that you know, I'm stagnant in my faith, uh, I, I, I'm not reading my Bible, and so here's all the things I need to do in 2024 in order to get right. That's not the right thing framework. It's not the right foundation to build your faith upon. Don't make the mistake of trying to come to God by doing the right things. Learn to love God for God. That's the main point. Second, sin, so we talked about sin's self-centeredness, sin's ability to deceive both good people, bad people, immoral people, rebellious people, and, and upright religious people. We're all affected by it. Second point is sin's ability to distract us. Okay, we're going to go to verses 10 and 11, and Paul says this. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, and there's no one who seeks God. And when you look at this, when you look at this uh, what he's saying is, he, he's, you, you might be sitting in this room today and saying, no one seeks God? I'm sitting in a room of about 100 people. Like, surely, is he writing to, like, a, a different church? he couldn't be talking about all of us including myself how could how could he say no one seeks god but the language here understanding seeking turning turning away right these are all these aren't like behavioral terms these are relational terms this is like a direction of where your life is actually pointing right paul's not talking about people's behaviors or people's actions he's pleading And he's not chastising his audience for not following the rules. He's pleading with people to check their heart. He's pleading a case for them to understand, to learn to trust and to learn to love God. Therefore, sin isn't just an action that we perform. It's not just the fact that you did something. No, sin is a distraction. Because what he's talking about is sin is is the motive behind all of our actions, behind all of our intentions. Right? The actions, attitudes, and nature so let's put the actions aside and let's talk about the attitude and the nature, right? It's really tempting to play word association when you hear the word sin. And I know you probably came here this morning and saw the fireworks and you're like, man, this is a dark sermon, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing sin, uh, I'm, you know, he's, he's coming down really hard on me. But I don't, I don't want you to hear the word sin and start guilt-tripping yourself and start chastising yourself for all the things that you don't do that you should do and all the things that you didn't do that you know you shouldn't have done, right? Because that's, that's the natural mindset that we get in. But the choices that you make are actually, and we, we need to understand this, that every single one of our choices that we make, even the good ones, can be driven by a sinful motive. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that there's no, that we can't do good things. But what I, what I want to highlight here this morning is we all need to check our hearts We all need to ask ourselves, are the good things that we're doing, even in the name of the Lord, are they being done for for him? Or are they being done for our own ego? Are we being distracted, even in the midst of our striving to do so-called good things? Is it for God or is it for us? Who's actually getting the fame from our actions? It's safe to say... Again, and I ask myself these, I've been asking myself these questions for a month and a half you know, while I've been prepping for this, but it's, it's safe to say that you know, I've noticed that one of the biggest motives in my life is that, that's drive by sin is the need for control. I want to I wanna know that if I do all the right inputs, then I'm going to get all the right outputs, right? And if you're anything like me, you, you kind of understand that. It's like, I'm going to set up this, this system of my life, and I'm going to be seen as this upright, moral person. And, and then that's going to build up, you know, my, my little kingdom here, and I'm going to earn people's respect because of my oral, moral upright standing, and it kind of gets reinforced every single day when you hear things at work from people that say, like, oh, man, you're just such a great guy. When I look at you, I just see, I just see God in you, and it's like, oh, man, that feels really great. Here's my ego, right? Like, like, and even in the, the good things, like I'm trying to live with integrity. I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to do all of these things. It's so easy to get distracted and to have my ego get in the way of, of my actual obedience to what God's calling me to do, how he's calling me to live. And our sinful nature wants us to essentially take God out of the driver's seat and put us, put him in the back seat and put us in the driver's seat. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the captain of my ship Yeah, I got the Bible here. It's in the passenger seat. You know, the cover's closed. But but I'm just blazing my own trail. I'm going to do what I think is best. And and really, sin can kind of manifest itself in motive, and and we can have these desires in one of two ways. The first way is we can live according to our own rules. We can just say, you know what? I don't need religion. I don't need tradition. I'm going to blaze my own path. I kind of, I'll be the captain of my ship, I can drive, you know, I can sail the seven seas and, and, and blaze my own trail, come to my own conclusions, cast off restraint, make my little YOLO bracelet and call it, you know, call it a day. Because when I determine my way, then I'll eventually end up at the salvation that I see coming, right? But the problem is, we all know that rebelling against God isn't going to benefit us. Because God's the one who's designed the environment for us to thrive. God's the one that designed the world in the way that it's supposed to function. And whether it's, whether it's you know, the, the scientists saying that the Big Bang actually started at a singularity, I think it's going to catch up to the fact that a lot of the systems and, and ways that God set life into order are actually true. And, and it's, it's just going to take science a little bit to, to actually figure all of that out, Right? And so while you're trying to blaze your own trail, you're really just what's, what's the advice that people get? And when I'm walking through the, the, the halls at the manufacturing plant, I hear people, "Oh, I'm down, I'm down, I'm this, I'm, I'm, my, my life is terrible." And you know what the best advice that I hear people giving is to other people who are trying to blaze their own trail? It's just, yeah, you know what you need. You know what you really need? You just need another party. You just need to do something fun. You need to go and get away. You need to go to Vegas. You need to to, to let it all loose for a while, and then then you'll get over it. What kind of terrible advice is that? Because the party's going to end, and you're going to need another, and the the fun's going to end, and you're going to look for something else, right? Like It's awful, and if that's the best advice that we have to give each other, I, I hope that there's something more substantial than that. The other way that sin distracts us is it deceives us that this, self, this sense of self-control is actually going to lead us to the life that we want to have, okay? And this is what I was, I was list, talking about earlier with my own life, is that you set up this code for you to follow, and you have all your rules and regulations, and you got your inputs, and you got your expected outputs, but the problem is you're literally putting fate in your own hands, You're saying my ability to follow my rules will lead me to salvation and will mandate God's blessing on my life because all of my rules and regulations come from all of these great Bible verses and all of this wonderful wisdom that the Bible has to offer me. And so because I've set up my code and because I follow it religiously every single day, that's what's going to let God's blessings flow. But the problem with this approach is that your motive is off base. You're you're, you're not loving God for God. You're actually loving God just to receive the blessings that you're expecting from him from your little spreadsheet that you set up. So take caution. Whether you're the rebel who's trying to blaze your own path or you're trying to be the moral upright person living by your own code, that you're not being distracted by sin. That sin's motive to to put you in the driver's seat isn't taking over your life don't want to pursue the things from God rather than God himself. So look look at the passage. The passage doesn't say, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the passage doesn't say that no one seeks blessings from God. Of course they do. Who wouldn't want blessings? The passage doesn't say no one seeks answer to prayer. We would all love that. We'd all love to be able to talk to God, ask him anything, and have it happen. That would be amazing. No. What the passage is saying is that, oh yeah, The passage isn't saying that we're not looking for forgiveness from God because just as Paul was a Pharisee, he would have, have, you know, like I said earlier, he would have repented publicly and been praised for it, right? The passage is saying that no one seeks God because in all of our strivings, all of our servings, all of our efforts to do the things that we know we should do as Christians, we're still marked by sin and we're distracted from the main thing. As we start pursuing things like, you know, if you've ever been in a ministry position, or you've you've, you've been serving in, in like you know the less fortunate or, or whatever, what happens? You get in fights. You get angry. The ministry or the the the, the, the community service that you're doing, it's not being done your way, right? You, this is this is my ministry. This is my you know homeless care thing, and, and we need to do it this way. Why? Because I set it up, and 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 I'm I'm while well, I started at good motives. Um, the results are all going to reflect on my ego, my reputation, and, and my desire to do something good to serve other people, right? We, we, we've all been in those situations. We've all been in those situations where we, we let little things distract us from actually pursuing who God is and what he's called us to do in the first place. So am I making sense? Does that make sense? Like, like the trajectory away from our relationship with God and towards the blessing that comes is a really, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it, it's a really slippery slope, because one, one wrong step, I mean, adulation and praise, it, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to do something good and get praised for it. But we have to remind ourselves that of, of why we got into this thing in the first place, right? And if you've ever seen the movie Tangled, you'd understand the principle that I'm trying to illustrate here for you. Do I have that picture up there? Remember remember this movie, Rapunzel? Came out a couple years ago, I don't remember the year, but we got the lady in the, in the black hair, that's Mother Gothel, and the blonde is Rapunzel, and Mother Gothel found this flower, okay? It was her own personal flower, she loved this flower because when she said the magic words, the flower was like a fountain of youth. She stayed forever young, and so she 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 loved this flower, she hid the flower away, it was hers, right? And all of a sudden, the princess that was born to the king and the queen had this, you know, life-altering sickness. And so um, they, used the, they found the flower, and they used it to cure her, right? And so she was miraculously cured by the flower. But Mother Gothel had lost her flower. So what's she going to do? How is she going to drink from the proverbial fountain of youth? She makes this plan. She breaks into the castle. She steals the princess and hides her away from the world, right? And so now she's got a baby, that she's caring for, and when when you look at the movie and you look at the way that that Mother Gothel treats Rapunzel, did she provide for Rapunzel? Absolutely. She went to the market every single day, got the food for her. Right. She she got the she got the the she allowed her to do art. She got her paints. She she you know took care of all of her whims and and desires. Did she uh, protect her? Absolutely. She built this big you know castle way far away from everybody Um, you know she had great amenities you know beds and animal friends and all of these things but the question that I want to highlight this morning and I want to ask you and I think you know the answer did Gothel actually love Rapunzel no she didn't she didn't love Rapunzel she loved the blessings that came from the flowers magical power from Rapunzel's life So while she was doing all of the right things that any good mother would do for their child, she wasn't actually loving the child for who the child was. She was only loving the blessings that came from the child. And likewise with us, that's what this passage is saying. So without the presence of the Holy Spirit, no one seeks God. No one desires for understanding. No one actually wants God for God because we're so distracted by sin. Pride can blind us all. Sin is crouching at the door, and we all have a sinful nature that loves to be praised for the good works that we do. I was asked a couple weeks ago by a coworker about why why do we pray? You know, it, it, the the big the big issue was, um, you know, his mother had a, a medical emergency, and so she was part of a church, and the whole church prayed for her, and and nothing changed, right? And the question was, what is the point of prayer? if it doesn't actually work, if nothing actually changes. And, you know, it, you, you, get, you get caught off guard when, when, when it kind of comes from, uh, from, you know, left field. It's like, oh, man, excuse me, I wasn't actually, you know, prepared for that question. And the more you think about it, it's like, man, why do we pray? Why do we actually seek God? Why do we, we come before him in prayer? And you realize that it's really easy to follow God to pray to God, to read your Bible, to, 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 to go through all of the religious motions when life is good, isn't it? When the sun is shining, the, 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 the sky is blue, and, and blessings and provision come your way, it's like, man, God's great. He's blessed me. Look at what I've got, right? Look at, look at how he's provided. But it's only when trials show up, when you find yourself in that crucible, right? When you've got heat, you've got pressure, and you've got stress, that you actually realize why you got into Christianity in the first place. And so prayer is a reminder, a constant reminder to us. Did you get into Christianity for God to bless you or for you to follow and love God in the first place? And that's why we pray, whether he answers our prayers or not. It's because... When you, when you have this resolve, when you have this understanding of who God is, it drives you through the trials, through the crucible, through all the stress in your life to say, you know what, when trials come my way, I don't say, where's God? He seems distant, I'm putting my Bible aside, I don't need him because I'm so stressed out. No, I say, bring it on. I say, you know, the, the higher they raise me, uh, the higher they raise you. The lower they raise me, the more I, I need you, right? He's, you say this, just like what uh, Job said. In Job 1.21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if Job can, can say that after losing his entire all of his kids and all of his property, then we can say that in the midst of our trials, too. So don't run away from God through rebellion. Don't try to blaze your own path. And guard your heart, because even the good things that you do, we can be distracted away from our first love. Because we can do things for the wrong reasons. We need to love God for God. So now you're asking, what do we do about this? And this is our final point this morning. What do we do about the sin in our life? I imagine that you're probably feeling a bit hopeless because you realize, I'm self-centered, I'm distracted, I I can't even do good things for, for for the right reasons. What am I supposed to do? And if I was sitting in your seat and I was listening to this as, as I was for the past month and a half, I'd be feeling pretty depressed. I'd be feeling anxious because I realize that all my actions, all my attitudes, all of the good things in my life are being done for the wrong reasons. I feel completely helpless. And if you're sitting here today and, that, and those thoughts are going through your mind, you're on the right track. Because I want to affirm you that those are the absolute right thing, that's the right posture to have. When someone gives you constructive criticism, when someone, even with good intentions, tries to help you better yourself, what is your natural response? Is it to say, oh, thank you for helping me with this blind spot in my life? So often, th- that's not our natural response. So often we hear little critiques and we're like, no, but wait, you don't understand this. Let me give you this excuse. Let me try to, 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 to talk my way out of it, right? And, and it keeps us from actually understanding how broken we actually are. And so look at the way that Paul describes humanity uh, later on in this passage. He says this, All have turned away. Their throats are open-graved. They're deceived with their tongues. Their vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He's showing us a glimpse of the reality of the world. We've all chosen to sin at some point in our life, and we've all used our words to cut people down. We've all used our motives for selfish gain. We've all, we've all, you know, bigged ourselves up or or teared someone else down, so that by proxy we can big ourselves back up. We all desire, you know, that that retribution and, and and getting right when we're wronged. The fact is, we read these things in scripture, and we have to be able to understand what the illustrated what the illustration is pointing us towards. It's despite of our best effort that no one seeks God, no one is righteous, and we're all in the same boat, totally depraved. So what do we do about it first thing verse 19 we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to Paul to God's judgment the first solution offered by Paul is to have our mouths shut how is that going to help us how does how does shutting our mouths help us before the Lord how does that 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 help us? Well, if, if you feel that natural tendency when someone confronts you with something to, to get defensive, to bow up, to say, I'm not as bad as you're making me out to be, that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying when we're confronted with our own sinful desire, the first solution is to shut our mouths, is to quiet ourselves, is to, is to put the excuses behind us, is to, is, is to not deceive ourselves with our tongue or minimize just how bad we actually are in our minds. It's when passages like this in the Bible that show up and we're confronted that we realize or we try to tell ourselves that we're really not all that bad. And what this, what this point makes me think of is, you ever seen Spider-Man No Way Home? Peter's, uh, Peter Parker is uh, uh, framed for being the, the vigilante, and they finally catch him, and he's, he's held for questioning. And there's this scene where he's in the room and they're asking him all these questions and he's trying to deny everything because he's a hero but they all were deceived by the bad guy who made him think Peter Parker was the bad guy right and so he's in the middle of his questioning they show uh, MJ and Aunt May and and Ned are getting carried in don't say anything without a lawyer right and they're like like, like quiet quiet And so then they snap to another scene, MJ's sitting there, like, weren't you an accomplice with Peter Parker? And she's like, I'd like to talk to my lawyer. Weren't you doing this? I'd like to talk to my lawyer. Weren't you doing that? I'd like to talk to my lawyer. Then they snap to MJ, aren't you just a terrible guardian? Like, this is your nephew or whatever the relationship is. Like, this is parental neglect. Like, like, you should have done this. I'd like to talk to my lawyer. And then they snap to Ned. And what does Ned do? He's like, he's sitting there, he goes, um... Well, uh, uh, I'm not supposed to say anything to you without my lawyer. He's like, oh, I get that, I get that, but I just have one question. Like, all this stuff that you did, like, you really were, weren't trying to help Spider-Man, were you? And he's like, well, I actually knew he was Spider-Man before. I was his accomplice, I knew all these things, we did all the, we saved the whole world. And he's like, and the questioner goes, so you're basically telling me that you were an accomplice to a vigilante crime. And he goes, um, I'd like to have that stricken from my record, right? We all know the scene. He tries to excuse his way out, he thinks that the more that he talks the more that he's going to get out of the trouble that's right in front of his face, right? And so, what we're, not that we're supposed to get a lawyer before God, but the idea here is that we need to quiet ourselves. We need to stop the excuses. We need to stop defending our own sinful tendency and just sit before the Lord, silence ourselves, and wait and listen. Listen to what God's feedback is. Listen to, to yes, you know what, God, I can't fix myself. And even when I try to fix myself, I'm trying to fix myself for the wrong reasons. I need you. I've, I'm, I'm hopelessly marked by my sinful tendencies. I need you to, to, to free me from this. You have nothing to do but prayerfully ask yourself, where are my motives self-centered? Where am I doing good things for the wrong reason? How am I distracting myself from actually loving God for God? And then you sit, you repent of your sin, and you repent of your self-righteousness. And when you do that, Only when you put all the excuses aside, there will you find spiritual silence. And the second second solution to our problem is actually right at the end of verse 18. Right at the end of Paul going through all of these descriptors of all of these really graphic ways that sin manifests itself in the lives of people, he says this. Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so for some of you sitting here, you're like, fear of God, that's a really odd term. You know, when I think about God, and I've heard that God is love, I'm not sure how fear of God and loving God are supposed to go hand in hand. So you're telling me to love God for God, that's your main point, but yet you're also telling me to be afraid of him? Well, not not necessarily, okay? What I want to do this morning is to kind of reframe the understanding of what the fear of the Lord is, because it's actually a major theme throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, and If you've been around the church, you've heard some sort of, you know, the phrase is all over the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But to unpack what this is, I want to go to Psalm 112.1. The psalmist writes, happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. So with that understanding, how can you be both happy and afraid? How can you, how can you, how can you fear God and yet be happy about it? Well, When you reframe your understanding of what the fear of the Lord is, you actually understand that a really good term, instead of fear, is reverence. Or as Tim Keller describes it, he says, it's awe and wonder before holy God. And the only way to revere someone, the only way to catch a glimpse of that awe and wonder before God, is to actually know who he is. You know, in Christianity, throughout the Bible, there's many stories. But the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it this way. He says, the Bible is a single wonderful story beneath all of the stories in the Bible. The story about how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And every story whispers his name. Every other religion, every other spiritual practice, every other guru out there is going to tell you that if you do the work, you will find your way to bliss and salvation. If you go through the effort... You will get the 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 reward. If you have the right input, you'll get the right output. But Christianity is, in a, is on an island completely of its own. The message of the gospel, the, understand, the Christian understanding of salvation is completely different because only in Christianity do you get to see that it's not, that salvation is not you finding God, but in fact God seeking and finding you. And, the, and, and one of the best stories to illustrate this comes from the Old Testament, out of the book of Hosea. In this book, God speaks to a prophet named Hosea and tells him to marry a woman named Gomer, okay? And he, he marries Gomer, and in the midst of their relationship, he finds out that Gomer has been unfaithful to him. She's gone from man to man, relationship to relationship, looking for something, and, and Gomer is, or Hosea is broken by this. Um, at one point in the story, uh, Hosea realizes that one of the children actually came from one of these uh, relationships, and he literally names uh, the child uh, Lo-Ami, which is Hebrew for I am not yours. What a, uh, what a reality, well, that's when reality strikes, sets in, right? And Gomer's unfaithfulness continues until one day she just up and leaves the family. She leaves Hosea, she leaves the kids, and she says, you know, I'm off. And the story doesn't tell us how many relationships Gomer actually has. But the story shows us that one of these relationships actually led Gomer to rock bottom. Because one of the men that she was with decided that it was best to sell her into slavery. And this is one of the moments where I take myself, I'm looking at the scripture, and I I take a step back and I say, how do I picture this scene actually playing out in real life? And this is, this is the way that I see it, okay? She's hit rock bottom. She's being sold into slavery. And, 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 you know, she's marched into the public square. And it's at this point that God comes back to Hosea and reminds him of why he was to marry her in the first place. He, says, he instructs Hosea to go and buy back Gomer and to love her just as God loves his people. And so Hosea listens. He leaves his, 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 he leaves his home, he leaves the family, he marches into the public square where he sees Gomer up there being sold. And I can imagine her standing there stripped publicly for all to see, right? As, as this mass of, of, of unknown faces are, are bidding on her and, and, and attributing some monetary value to, to her worth, Right? And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this this going on, she hears a voice that's familiar. Bidding, bidding, every time the price goes up, bidding. And and after a while, she strains herself, and she realizes it's the voice of her husband, who's bidding, bidding, and finally wins the bid. And he goes up there, and I I can just picture him, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the cash, hands it over, takes his robe off, wraps it around Gomer's uh, shoulders, and he tells her, and he says, now... You can come home with me and be my wife. When I stood on the altar and I promised to be faithful to you, I meant it, and we're going to live the rest of our days together as a family. Wow. When I think about that story, I just think they don't make hallmark movies like that. He didn't berate her. He didn't guilt or shame her for, for running away. He obeyed the Lord, He stayed faithful to his wife and loved her to whatever end. But that's the story of us. That's the story of the way that God seeks and finds us because Jesus is not just another Hosea. No, no. Jesus is the ultimate Hosea because he didn't leave his house and go to the other town. He got off of his throne in heaven and came down to earth he gave up knowing everything, being able to do anything. Uh, he gave up being a part of Almighty God to live in a human body. He left his throne in heaven to come down to earth. And, and when what was the price for our freedom? What did he have to pay? He didn't reach into his pocket and pull out a couple of silver coins to pay for our freedom. No. Our freedom from sin, our freedom from the debt of sin cost Jesus his blood. So that by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he could clothe us with his robe of righteousness, covering our sinful natures, attitudes, desires, so that we could be set free. Then and only then, when you understand who God is and how much he loves you and what it cost him to buy your salvation, can you truly have awe and wonder before holy God and have a heart that says, Lord, I'm a firm to the sky. I, I can't believe how, 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 how much you love me, how much I matter to you because of what it cost you to buy my salvation. But Lord, on the other hand, I realize just how little that salvation has actually changed my life and how much I still to this day need you, how much to this day I still need my heart to be checked to make sure that my good deeds are being done for the right reasons, to make sure that my sinful actions aren't distracting me, aren't putting the, the, the focus on me, and instead, help me to see you for who you truly are. That's how we seek God. It's not creating a list, checking off, we need to have these religious rules and, and expectations. It's truly learning to love God for being the magnificent, wonderful, generous Heavenly Father that He actually is. That's the only way that you're going to be able to stop feeling spiritually stagnant and start learning to love God for God. So repent of your sin, find spiritual silence, and learn to love God for who he is. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely unworthy of your love. We are absolutely unworthy to come before you and ask you of anything. Lord, we're sinners by nature, by attitude, by choice and yet you still love us. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you sent your son down to die in our place for our sins once and forever so that we wouldn't have to strive to find you, but that we could learn to love you for who you are. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't love you, who hasn't given you the the reverence that you desire, who who hasn't said, I've tried going my own way and I need God, because I realize just how broken I actually am, that they would come to the end of themselves this morning and they would raise their hand right now and say, I need God. And if that's you, I just want to see your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. People online, if you comment, um, we will have people praying for you online. I'm just going to pray openly. and It's not the prayer that saves you, but I just want to give you some words to communicate back to God and say, Lord, thank you for loving an unworthy, sinful person like me, for sending your son to die in my place so that I could live with you forever, so that I could find my salvation, not in anything that I've done, but in the person and work of Jesus, who went to the cross for me, who was, who was stripped publicly and tortured for me, who shed his blood for me and rose three days later Proving that he was who he said he is. He's God's son, given once and for all so that we might have life. Thank you, Lord, for that gift. I understand just how awesome you are, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm setting my heart today to be in tune with who you are. For everyone else, I just want to put a heart check out there to say that if you've been stagnant in your faith, get to that spot where you're silent before the Lord and you can be filled with the awe and wonder of who he is. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.